God's got a plan for your life. Now that phrase is not entirely unlike the phrase that we talked about a couple weeks ago when I had the privilege of preaching here at our Fort Atkinson location. Anyone, here we go, quiz for those who were here. Do you remember what phrase it was? God will never give you more than you can handle. Yes, right. And we talked with that phrase about how that phrase is actually not in the Bible. It, it, it comes from a concept that's in the Bible, and that's what we dug into. And really that concept is not so much that you, got it, that you are strong enough just to handle anything that life throws your way, but rather you can always completely trust that God's going to give you the strength. He's going to bring you through. He's going to provide the way out and the hope that's there. But it, it, this phrase, God has a plan for your life, can be similar to that phrase because they can both become kind of cliche. That phrase is, is, is not a true phrase. The God won't give you more than you can handle. That's a phrase that needs unpacking. God having a plan for your life, that is a true phrase, but it can still feel kind of cliche sometimes. You know, when you're in the middle of something that's really hard and someone says, well, you know, God's got a plan, sometimes it could kind of be, I don't know, let's be honest, sometimes we just want to say, shut up, I know, but this is hard right now. You know, like sometimes it can feel like we're just being sold short for what we're experiencing. Or sometimes because we hear it so often, it can kind of, like, yeah, I know God has a plan, but what does that really mean? And, and how does that really give me comfort? Because the truth is, it should give us comfort. It, it's meant to give us comfort, which is why today we're going to lean into this. What are God's plans like? What is he really doing? What is he really up to? The lesson we have is Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, the background for this lesson is actually the same background for a lesson that we studied probably, I think it was the last Sunday in July. So if you were here then, some of it might sound uh, somewhat familiar. That's when we asked that question, what can't God do? What's helpful when you think about the book of Jeremiah is, is to remember, in order to really see the significance of this book, is, is we've got to remember the big picture that it's a part of, the big story. We've got to remember that when God looked at this broken world, God, at one point in history, he decided to take one man named Abraham, and he said, I'm going to turn you into a great nation, and I'm actually, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. I'm going to take on everything that makes this world broken. I'm going to bring healing to this world through you, through your descendants. And then God took Abraham, gave him all these descendants that turned into this, this big group of people. And these are the, 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 the people that we know of as the people who were down in Egypt and then came out and they walked through the Red Sea. They were led by God through the wilderness. These are people who had this incredible privilege of being the special people of God, set aside by God, led by God, the people that he wanted to work through to bring blessing to the world, the people who he gave this king named David, who he made a promise to, that there would be a descendant of him who would sit on a throne that would be established forever. In other words, the one who would save the world would be from the line of David, part of this group, a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham, or excuse me, of David. Through him, there would be hope and healing to the whole world. It's important to keep that in mind because when we keep that in mind, we can realize just how tragic the book of Jeremiah is because while these people had this privilege of being the special people of God, the ones who got to participate and partner with God to bless the world. Instead of celebrating that, they kept turning away from that. They kept wanting to be like the world instead of being a, a, a picture to the world, a blessing to the world. Which is why over time, God sent all these prophets to them. 
And if you go through the Old Testament, there's all these, these, these prophets, some of these pretty interesting names. And they're all these really abrupt books. And they're just trying to shake the people up and say, hey, you're the people of God. Come back. Stop running after all these other things. And stop doing these terrible things. They were doing some awful things. And through the prophets, God said, if, if you don't turn back, if you don't repent, if you don't turn back to me, there's going to be consequences for this. And that's what Jeremiah's ministry, part of his ministry was to do, too, was to warn the people, hey, you're getting awfully close. There's going to be consequences for your actions. And he warned them that if they didn't turn back, that this neighboring nation, Babylon, was going to come in and just conquer them and to, to come in and to take people off in exile and all these terrible things would happen. And, and well, they didn't listen, and it started happening in Jeremiah's lifetime. Jeremiah actually sees this exile take place. He sees these people being taken off to Babylon. And right here, before we even get into the lesson itself, as we think about what Jeremiah sees, as we think about everything that happens here in Jerusalem, right here we can begin answering the question, what is God really up to? When you look at this lesson, what is God really doing here with these people? As the world is falling apart and literally burning up, What's going on? Well, what's going on is that God had been warning them for years and years to turn back, and that if you don't, there's going to be consequences. And, you know, the fact that God gives our actions consequence is actually part of what's beautiful about God. Uh, because God wants us to have significance. And to have significance, our actions have to have consequence. If your actions didn't mean anything, if they didn't have potential consequence, they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't have any significance. But the fact that our actions can have consequence or do have consequence, whether good or bad, means that they have significance. And if you think about it, the more significant you are, the more privileged you are, the bigger con consequences your actions have. I mean, like, for, it's, it's one thing, for instance, say if somebody were to drive drunk, that's bad. It would be one, it'd be a whole other thing to drive drunk with a car full of kids. The privilege of being a parent means you have greater responsibility and then greater consequence. And so, these people were given this privilege of being God's people. And what's going on is that God is giving them the significance of consequence. There are consequences for your actions. You've brought this on yourselves. They are seeing the fruit of their actions. Now, as we think about consequences for our actions, though, it, it's important that we keep in mind as Christians that when there are consequences for our actions, that doesn't mean God is punishing us for our sins. Because Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. Sometimes we can feel like, okay, is God punishing me for this? The reality is there's nothing further we need to do to be right with God. Jesus did all of it. Everything there is paid for on the cross. There's nothing else we need to do. To act like there's something else we need to do would be to, to lessen what Jesus did on the cross. And, and he did all of it. So God, we don't, he, he's not punishing me for what I've done. He might, though, be disciplining us. And the Bible talks often about discipline and, and the beauty of it. The book of Hebrews has a great uh, section in chapter 12. It talks about how if you're a parent, you're going to want to discipline your child. Because you want to teach them, you want to grow them. God may be disciplining you, but he's not punishing you to make you right with him, to make you pay for your sins. God will work through what is going on to discipline his children. What is he really up to? Sometimes in the middle 
of something that's going on, we got to be honest. The hard truth is that what we're just doing is that we are experiencing the consequences of our own actions. And God may be allowing those consequences to happen to discipline and to teach us. Now, sometimes it might be because of our own actions, but also it might just be because of the world we live in. Because when you think about the Babylonian captivity and they're taken off and all these terrible things happen, there's still people who are worshiping God at this point. I mean, it's not that everybody is turned away from God. I mean, for instance, Jeremiah, the prophet here, he's serving God, and yet he still experiences the results of the captivity. The book of Daniel has people in it. I mean, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the people who stand up and then they get thrown in the fiery furnace, right? These are people who are faithful to God. Daniel, he's faithful to God. And yet they are experiencing all these issues, the, 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 the problems of being taken off in the captivity. Sometimes what is God really doing? He's allowing you to experience what it's like to live in the mess that you live in, <laughs> in the world that you live in. It's not necessarily a, a specific result of a specific thing you did, but maybe you're just you're, you're part of this world that is just broken, and you are experiencing that. Now, just because you are experiencing the result of a broken world and, and, and maybe even the consequences of your own actions, it doesn't mean that God is happy with what's going on in this broken world. One of the interesting things, if you look at this whole section with Jeremiah, is that God uses Babylon to bring justice for what his people were doing and as uses it as a consequence. But then he turns and he brings justice against Babylon. If you think of the book of Daniel, and there's that phrase, right? Do you see the writing on the wall? It comes from Daniel. And it comes from this whole account where the king of Babylon, they have this whole thing, he's having a feast, and then there's the writing on the wall. And what is it letting him know? It's letting him know that this other kingdom's going to come and conquer them. And there's going to be justice for all the wrong they've done. Because what they were doing was wrong. God wasn't happy with what Babylon was doing. He wasn't pleased with all these terrible things that they were doing. He was using them. He was purposing them, but he still wasn't pleased with them. So what is God really doing when things are happening? He's not taking pleasure in bad things. He's not enjoying the awful things that are happening or that people are doing. He may be using them, but he is not taking pleasure in them. And he will one day set everything right. Now, as we look at Jeremiah here, thankfully, in, in the section we're in, we're not just in a section where he's talking about all the bad things that can happen. We're actually in a section where Jeremiah is bringing some good news. He's bringing some promise. He, he right here, he has a letter. What, what we have, what we're reading is from a letter that has been sent to the exiles who are already in Babylon. And it's letting them know, first of all, to, to go ahead, live there, Work for the good of that place. Pray for the good of where you are. You're not home, but this is the kingdom you're in right now. Do the best you can where God is, where you are right now. But also have this, this, this hope. Know this truth. That God has promised that after 70 years, he's going to start bringing people back. God has made a promise to you, and God is going to carry out that promise. God makes promises to his people, and what is he doing? He is carrying out those promises. And the reason he's carrying them out is what we see in our lesson today. Our lesson today shows us the character of God, what God is doing, and that's why God is carrying out the promises that are going on here with his people and in our lives. 
See, in our lesson, it says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And the word plans, it's this interesting picture in the original language. One of the things I love about uh, having been trained is to read the original languages, it's not always that the translations are wrong, but often it's that there are pictures in the original language that you just don't get when you read in the English. And the picture here is of taking and weaving something together. This is what making a plan is like. Maybe you've seen, maybe you've been to one of those, those craft stores or, or art galleries or whatever where someone takes all these different, you know, they've taken all these things and they've woven, woven them together into this incredible piece of art. And it can be so complex, right? They're taking all these different pieces and just weaving them together. This is what God is doing when he's making plans. This is what his plans are like. He's taking all the things going on in this world, whether it's the good choices we make or the bad choices, whether it's the good things that are happening or the bad things that are happening, whether it's the stuff that is the consequences or the stuff that's going on in the world, whatever it is, he's taking every little part and he is weaving them all together. And you think about how an artist can take all those different strands, whatever, whether it's yarn or whatever it is that they use. I don't know what they use. Beautiful stuff, whatever it is. They take all the pieces, and it can be really complex. We'll take that in to a whole nother level. God is taking all the things in your life, all the things in the lives of the people around you, everything going on in the world, every detail, and weaving it all together. And in this phrase, by the way, before we move forward, the way it reads, it says, when it says, I know the plans I have for you, it literally says, I am weaving. I know the weavings I'm weaving. (laughs) He's just bringing this emphasis out. I know how I'm weaving things. I'm weaving things. I know the weavings that I'm weaving. I am weaving everything. This is what God is doing. What is God really up to? He's taking every detail and weaving them all together. He's weaving them together to prosper you and not to harm you. And we're going to take the second part of this phrase first before the word prosper. Not to harm. The word that's translated harm is a really, it's, it's, a, it's a word that when you see it in the original language can bring a lot of backstory to it. It's the word that, it can be translated harm, that's fine. Uh, often can just be translated to make bad. It's just talking about things becoming bad in whatever way, whether it's harm or whether it's just suffering bad things or whatever it is. But it's things becoming bad by being broken into pieces. So you see how that glass is broken apart there? This is the idea. The, the, the picture is of things becoming broken. But what's really interesting about this word besides the picture is that this word is actually the same word that's been used when you go back to the garden and Adam and Eve ate from a tree in the garden which was known as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The word that's translated evil there is this same word. So you could actually translate it the tree of knowledge of good and bad, or good and harm, or whatever. Why is that interesting? This verse is saying that God is not weaving things together to break your life into pieces, to break it apart. And you know part of the reason why he's not weaving things together to break your life apart? Somebody already did that. Adam and Eve already broke the world when they took the fruit. And every time we, every time we, instead of trusting God, but rather do things because they look good to us and they seem right to us, 
Every time we take the fruit like Adam and Eve, we break the world. God's not weaving things together to break the world. The world is already broken. God's not weaving things together to break our lives. We already do that. What is God really doing? He is not breaking our lives. They're already broken. God is not breaking the world. It's already been done. God's not breaking things apart. He's not weaving things together to break things apart. He's weaving things together to prosper you. The word prosper in the original language is the Hebrew word shalom, which you probably have heard before. It's, it's that phrase that Jews today will still use the word shalom. It's a beautiful, beautiful word. It's a beautiful word that is ultimately fulfilled by what God chose to do the moment, well, I should say he chose before this, but he declared this the moment sin came into this world. The moment this world became broken, God promised that he would send someone to repair it. There would be a descendant of Eve who would take on the evil one, the enemy who broke this world. And that's what Jesus came to do. We broke the world. Adam and Eve broke the world. We break the world. Jesus came to repair it. Jesus came to repair it in a way that doesn't look like repairing it at first because what he did was he became broken on a cross, but he became broken so you and I wouldn't have to be broken anymore. He took the consequence of sin so we wouldn't have to carry it anymore. He took the justice for sin so it wouldn't have to be honest anymore. He became broken so we could be made whole. And to really understand, to really take hold of what this concept is of being made whole, of this shalom of this peace. We're going to take a couple minutes and, and check out the Bible Project's video about this word. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. 
And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting, it also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom. And his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, My peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. Isn't there a lot more to that word than just, you know, prosper, like do good things? I mean, the word is beautiful and it packs so much in, into just that one word. And it helps so much more understand what's going on here. If, if, if harming is breaking into pieces and the world has been broken into pieces and their lives have been broken into pieces, it makes so much sense that peace and prospering means restoring what was lost restoring what was broken, healing what was broken. And that's what God is doing, is he is weaving everything together. We are experienced living in a broken world. Sometimes just feels like, man, why is everything breaking? Well, we are. We're in this broken world, this broken consequences, all these things. But God is weaving things together not to break things. They're already broken. He's weaving everything together to repair. What you've lost he is restoring. What is broken, he is healing. This is what God is really up to. And this is why God makes a promise. This is why he says that I'm weaving things together, together to give you hope and a future. Now we're going to take the second, the end part of this, this phrase again first. This time because the word order in the original language does so. It actually says in the original language that he is weaving things together to give you a future and hope. Which, I think they did it this way in the translation because it seems backwards. Like, it would seem like I would give you hope of a future. But here it says I'm going to give you a future and then a hope. And as we dig into it, we can maybe see why the original language puts it in that order. But first, let's look at the word future. The word talks about the latter part. Basically, the, the what comes next. For the people here that this lesson is written to, Jeremiah is encouraging in them that your story is not going to end in Babylon. Build houses, live there, do the best you can. That's not where your story ends. 
there's more. He is making that promise, that specific promise that after 70 years, people would start to come back. There is a next step. There's a next part. There is something to look forward to ahead. And it's the same thing for us. Now, unfortunately, we don't have the same sort of like specific time frame when it comes to the exact events of our lives. Like, I wish I could tell you that the Bible says that in this many months, COVID's going to be no more a thing. I wish I could tell you that. I wish I could tell you that in this many months, your job is going to finally succeed the way you wanted it to, or your family is going to finally, you know, be on time somewhere or whatever. I'm thinking of my family with that. Um, you know, <laughs> you know the, I wish I could tell you those things, right? I, I don't have those specifics. But if you think about God's word, it is full of statements about what will happen. We talked about one of them two weeks ago when we talked about that whole question, will God ever give you more than you can handle? There's that statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that he will provide a way out. If your faith is being tested, you can trust that God will provide a way out. That is coming. That is ahead. It will be there. Or in a similar way, like Hebrew, or James chapter 4, if you're fighting a temptation of the devil and it says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil... The devil will flee from you. That will happen. That is what's next. Look forward to that. Or like Isaiah chapter 40, when it talks about how those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. You will renew your strength. You will run and not grow weary. Maybe you will renew your strength at some point ahead in this life. Maybe it's not until you're in eternity with Jesus, but it is ahead. That will happen. That's what's next. What is God really up to? God is really up to giving you something ahead. You and I have something ahead to look for. Our life doesn't end here. This is not the end of the story. This is not where the period is. There's more. There's more to look forward to. He is giving us a future. And he's given us hope. This word hope, this is an intriguing picture in the original language. And I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. The word at its core means rope. And there's a variety of, of, of theories as to why this word became used for hope. Uh, like maybe um, people thought, you know, maybe it's because, you know, you tie a rope together and you're getting tight as you're thinking about what's maybe next or whatnot. But I don't know, as I thought about it, I thought more like this. Like, if you are given a rope, what does that rope do? Like, it connects you to something, right? And like, if you were climbing up a rock face or whatever, that rope actually can be your ultimate hope because if you're like me and, you know, not great at rock climbing, that rope is what lets you know I'm going to be safe. I've done rock climbing and I've made it to the top, but um, actually I, one year, I broke my leg in the process one year. That's another story. Um, but uh, didn't even know it. I went home, walked on it, never went to the doctor. That tough. Anyway, anyway, the rope, <laughs> that wasn't planned. That wasn't supposed to be part of the sermon. It's just one of those spirit moments. What does the rope do? It connects you to something, right? And you think about what hope does. Isn't that what hope really is? It's like it's connecting you to, when you think about what's ahead, that future, when you have a future, you have a hope. And it connects you to what's coming. And it, and it, and it sustains you. It keeps you there. If there's somebody on the other end, it can even actually pull you closer and this is what God does, is that he, he gives you a future, and he gives you hope. But it's not just that he gives you the hope of a future. 
There's this thing with the way God's promises work, where when God fulfills promises, he often does so in a progressive way. So like when you look at the people here in this lesson, if you look at the verses that come right after our sermon lesson, God talks about how he's going to give you, give you a future and then a hope. And then he says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. So the progression is he's going to give you something, and then you're going to have hope, and then you're going to reach out to him and find him. In other words, people would, at the 70 years, start calling out to God, start reaching out to God, and start wanting to go back. They would begin to go back. The promise wasn't just that things would be done in 70 years, but that there would be a progressive return back to the promised land. That's how the promises of God often work, is that he begins to fulfill them. And even when they go back, it's interesting. When they go back, if you look at the rest of Jeremiah, Jeremiah has these big statements about how they're going to go back, but then he talks about gathering all of God's people from all the nations and about giving people a new heart and all these things. At the 70 years, did everybody come back from all the nations? Well, no, they didn't. And was everything perfect back in God's promised land, in that holy land? Well, no. Actually, many of the people who were old enough to remember what the previous temple looked like before it was destroyed, many of those people were told that they cried, they were weeping, because the new temple didn't look anything like the old one. It wasn't nearly as impressive. And they actually would face all these issues with these other people, these other nations who would come in and desecrate the temple at different times. There'd be all this stuff going on. So what's going on then with God with this, this, this promise here? Did God prom- God's promise fail? No. What was going on was that God made a promise that he would bring them back, and that wasn't the end of the promise. What that did was connect them to the next step of the pro- promise. It's the next step in his fulfillment. It, it's, it, it restored the hope that this promise, remember that he was going to make, that he's going to set everything right through this nation, wasn't done. By bringing them back and giving them a future, it gave them a hope that he would ultimately someday do what he promised he would do. Bringing them back to the land wasn't the end of the promise. It was the restoration and renewal of a promise and the renewal of the bigger promise and of the hope. It was meant to restore and point them to that greater hope. What is God doing? What is God up to? In our lives, God is again and again coming through in incredible ways. And I would encourage you this week to think of ways in your life where you know, where you've seen, and people tell me this all the time, you know, in the middle I didn't get it, but I look back and I could see God's hand move, right? And I could see God do this and God do that. Think back to those times And if you can't think of a time like that, keep your eyes open. You'll see them. And see them for what they are. Those are not the end of the promise, but what they are is a restoration of the hope. They are little tastes. When God delivered you from that, it's a little taste that someday he's going to fully deliver you in a different way. When God brings you through that, it's a little connection to the fact that he's going to bring you ultimately to be with him forever. When you can think to those moments, have them restore and renew hope. See, for the people that came back after 70 years, what was promised in Jeremiah would ultimately not be accomplished by them coming back or building the temple or any of that. It would ultimately be accomplished 
when Jesus, God's son, would come into this world, finally live the life that we were meant to live, lay down and be broken for us on a cross so he could absorb all the brokenness so we could be healed. That's where it was finally accomplished. That's where their deliverance, that's where the promise was finally accomplished. And for you and me, it's the same thing. Every time that we are stuck in something, every time where we are facing and experiencing the brokenness of the world, the real deliverance from that was accomplished here. And every time God brings us through a challenging, broken, whatever situation, it's a reminder, it's a reconnector, it's a reinstator of the hope of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and of the deliverance that's ahead. Of the fact that God is taking what is broken and he's healing it. God is taking what was lost and he's giving it back. He's giving you life with him. He's giving you life the way it was meant to be. Bit by bit in this life, we're experiencing little tastes of that, of that restoration, that deliverance, and as we do so, it gives us hope that someday we will have ultimate peace, complete shalom. We'll have everything we need, everything we lost restored, everything broken, healed, life with him, united with each other. That is what God is really up.